Thank you for being here. The use of a land acknowledgement is to honor and acknowledge my presence on the traditional lands of our First Nations peoples. It was a practice by First Nations people when traveling through other nations' territories as a sign of respect. I acknowledge that the city of Hamilton, where I record this podcast, is situated upon the traditional First Nations territories of the Erie, Huron-Wendat, Haudenosaunee, Mississaugas, and the Chonodon of the so-called neutral tribes. Hamilton is also directly adjacent to the Haldeman Treaty Territory. This land is covered by the Dish with One Spoon Wampum Belt Covenant, which extends between Montreal and Fort Erie. It was an agreement between the Haudenosaunee and the Anishinaabe. That wampum uses the symbolism of a dish to represent the territory and one spoon to represent that the people are to share the resources of the land and only take what they need. Hamilton is home to many Indigenous peoples from across Turtle Island, and this land acknowledgement is a small gesture to recognize the rich history of this land, and so that I can better understand my role as a settler, as well as a neighbor, partner, and caretaker. I stand in solidarity with all those that fight for justice on behalf of the murdered and missing Indigenous women, girls, LGBTQ+, and two-spirited people. I grieve the generational trauma created by the residential school system and the 60s scoop. I grieve the children and childhoods lost through ignorance and racism. Miigwech. Thank you. Welcome to the arena, where sometimes the hardest part is showing up. My name is Linda McLaughlin. Thank you for being here. This is part two of my conversation with Steve Emery, who, as an artist, challenged himself to be courageous in his life and his work for 100 days. Steve and I met during the Creatives Workshop, which is a part of the Akimbo family of workshops that I've spoken about previously. I'll include that in the show notes. Over the course of more than 100 days, we developed a daily practice of creating and sharing our work with others. In Steve's case, he shared an extraordinary variety of sketches, maquettes, journal entries, and paintings using acrylics, pastels, or watercolors. He uses formal and random techniques to tease out shapes and stories from the canvas or the page. I might describe his work as abstract or magical realism. Shortly after the end of that workshop, he felt he needed to continue to grow, so he set himself a challenge of 100 days of courage. We talked in Season 2 about what he anticipated this challenge might bring, He also answered my five or six standard questions. You may also want to listen to it. It's episode 22. It's now well over 100 days, and we're picking up our conversation to hear what he's learned, what surprised him compared to what he originally planned. Thank you for listening. This is episode 36. I, when listening to the episode, I was only on day seven of the 100 days. So it was all still ahead of me pretty much at that point. I knew what I was doing and why I was doing it, but I didn't have any idea how it was going to go. And it's interesting because there were there have been some major detours. Yes. Right? I'm not pursuing the professional goal at this time because I realized that I was uh, building on the wrong foundation. I, what, I, what it felt like is I'm doing all my artwork from over here. Because I've, I've got things not quite aligned with my center mm-hmm. as, a, as an artist and a person. And so I realized that I needed to center myself first and then figure out what the body of work would look like from there. Mm-hmm. Maybe it includes the old body of work. Maybe it has to be a new body of work. 
I don't know. And so that that meant, oh, the whole pro thing, website thing and all that, that's all just got to wait because I feel like I'm not actually operating out of my true interior. Not yet. So that's where the detour turned out to be. And if you remember, that's when I dropped completely offline. Mm-hmm. So for 60 of those 100 days, I was pursuing everything underground almost at that point. So right. very different. So I don't know how you want to get into where it went opposed to where it was going to go. I'm going back to reading some of the excerpts from the original intro, which is from a post that you made many months ago now. I think we'd said this was probably about 130 or 140 days after the original post, but that you realized you needed to create your next 100-day challenge or you will drift. It's like a destination, but better, because it's more about process and practice the daily work. A friend had reached out to offer additional accountability around this. And thinking about what the friend wrote to you, you realized what you needed was not another challenge to do something that you already know how to do. You needed a challenge to attempt every day what you didn't know how to do. You need to engage with your fear about your work every day. You needed to attempt things that you believed were likely to make you wipe out that you're still not daring enough and failing enough when you attempt things. So your first scary thing is to commit to that 100 days. Welcome back, Steve. Thanks. It's great to be here. <laughs> it's great to be at the end, end of the 100 days or after the 100 days and be able to look back at it. But it's also just great to be here talking to you. So many questions. I guess one of the obvious questions is, at a high level, what happened? You set off on this journey and made some assumptions and some plans. You set some specific goals in terms of working in scale, taking it out for a walk, as you called it. So creating sort yeah. of a professional presence and, and working in, in color and medium. There was a bunch of different sort of ideas that yeah. you had at the time. Right. Well, what happened? So at a high level, what happened was the... The, the major goal was to wipe out or mm -hmm. to set myself up to do it more, right? To have the courage to do things that would cause that, to be more daring with the work. And I had two separate thoughts on how I would do that. One was about the work itself. What do I do in and with the work to make it more risky? And then the other was to set myself up to possibly fail or wipe out in the world. That's the whole take the art out for a walk. On one front, I think I did exceptionally well over the 100 days. I'm pleased with the result. And on the other, I had to postpone it. So mm. let me explain. What happened is that I began to, to understand, and I had a friends and a mastermind group and others point out to me that I was not probably as connected with my core as I needed to be to produce the kind of work I really wanted to take for a walk. And so instead of worrying so much about getting the website up and running and everything else, that's still out in the future. And I still want to do that. But instead of doing that first, it was more important to get my portfolio straight and get myself straight in terms of where I am with the work. So all the focus went toward wiping out and toward a lot of internal journaling that I did over this period of time. So I got into a type of journaling technique called internal family systems. It's a psychological technique used for having the different parts of ourselves talk to each other and um, begin to understand their relationships with each other. I use that method to do some very difficult and in many cases, very painful 
digging back into my past, mine, my family's, my parents' relationships to us, all sorts of things. Some good stuff, some really difficult stuff. So that was part of the courage and courageousness of the walk was going and digging back into all of that. That was very difficult to do, but very fruitful, really good for me. And then I began a whole series of things on the art side that were ways I could wipe out. One of them you see behind me, the period of time that started this, the, the bears showed up, <laughs> mm. right? We didn't talk about the bears on day seven back when we first talked because they had not shown up yet. So bears started showing up in a lot of my work. I mentioned earlier how a lot of my work is accidental, lots of lines, things emerge. Bears began emerging. One of the challenges I got, and you're one of the people that pushed me to it, is to work at scale, to work larger. So we changed a wall in my studio so I could put up a huge six foot by six foot sheet of brown paper, which is what I was going to start out on. So I wouldn't be too crazy about ruining a piece of canvas or whatever. And I just started doing the same kind of technique on that. And what emerged was a really large bear. And I was like, what's with the bears? <laughs> so I talked about that with my mastermind group and other friends and family and everyone else. And people started just agreeing with that the bear is sort of a stop sign. The bear and the piece behind me is also bright red, like a stop sign. And it was like, stop, think, dig deeper into where this all is coming from. And the piece on the wall, the six foot by six foot piece took probably three months to completely emerge, to completely paint and to finish. And that's different for me. I don't usually work that long or take that long. There were a number of stages where I almost abandoned it because it really was not working for me. So some wiping out, <laughs> right? Managed to salvage that, nearly wiped out, managed to you know still stay on the surfboard, whatever. But it's pleasant where it ended up to me now. I know that I have more work to do. So that's one of the things that was the challenge. I began a bunch of work in my non-dominant hand. So it's another hint I got was that if you draw with your, in my case, left hand, which is not the one I use, normally different things happen and you can't really control it because it's like going back to being in kindergarten. And so I began a whole series of non-dominant hand drawings and paintings. They've been exciting, interesting, revealing. Many of them are a complete and total mess. So very much, again, a case of wiping out. So that's been good. Many of them have been really surprising where they've come from, what they look like. Some of them don't look very much like the rest of my work. That's been very exciting. I was also guided during this time to go back and look at my old work. I mentioned how I've got 15 years of work here in the studio. I take it for a walk. Well, I went back and looked at it. And there are a lot of pieces in there that I had not been as happy with as I thought I should be. And going back and reviewing the portfolio very objectively, I'm more pleased with the work and more confident in the work than I think I was. So when I get to the stage where I am going to take the work for a walk, take it out in the world, I will, I think, have greater confidence that the work is acceptable, that the work is, is better than I thought it was. That's been really helpful. I've also started drawing and painting things that I consider to be forbidden, almost taboo, things you should not draw <laughs> as another way of trying to cross another line because I realized I had things I don't draw. I don't let myself draw that. And I'm like, why not? I don't have to show it to anybody, <laughs> but I should at least you know, consider it to be something I could try to draw. Well, why not? So I've started doing some of that. So these are all different ways I've crossed my different fear and constraints mm -hmm. lines, and they've all been fruitful. Hmm. What have you eliminated from the work that you had been doing? Fuss. 
fuss. Fuss okay. is staying inside the lines. I realize that a lot of what the non-dominant hand, I think, has taught me is that there's like a great deal of liveliness, charm, and emotion in doing work that does not stay inside the lines. It's not as planned. It's not as, it's not as tidy. That's been really, that's been really good for me. Freeing. Um, is that a word? Yes. Very freeing. But it's, it's like, it's given me another whole set of vocabulary, like another whole way to express things. Previously, it was all, even when I'm working in the accidental work where I find the image, I clean up those images quite a bit. And it's enabled me to see that uh, maybe I shouldn't clean them up quite so much. They're more alive and more with it when they're left alone. Some artists talk about how they'll do a sketch or they'll do preliminary drawings and then they get to the painting and the painting is not as exciting. It's not just that, hey, I'm doing this again. It's because it's cleaned up, polished and more premeditated. It doesn't have the liveliness of the original mm. sketch. The original sketch was rough. And some of the liveliness is in the roughness, in the incompleteness or the, I, I wasn't being super careful. The word spontaneity came to mind as you were saying that. Yeah, that's very fair. I've had pieces come out of the left hand that it's almost like I watched them get drawn. Mm. <laughs> it's really different when I draw with that hand. Sometimes I have a very definite intention of what it's going to be. Like I did a piece recently, which was a series of arcs, like a, the arch of a tunnel. And then it was going to have a whole series of animals in it. And I knew that's what I wanted to do, but I really hadn't thought any further about it than that. I just put the pen in my left hand and said, go buddy. And it just started drawing things. And the lion emerged first in the left-hand side. And then the, a big bear, it's the largest animal in the piece. And then a deer, and then a bunch of smaller animals, a fox, eight or nine mice. It's just, <laughs> and they, they just seem to, you know... They, they didn't have to be moved. They were in the right place to start with. It's like the left hand knew exactly where it wanted them all to go. They just all, they just were all drawn there. And then I went at it with a brush afterwards with a lot of yellow and orange and red, very childlike and very spontaneous. I, I love the piece, it's, but it's pretty different from the work I usually do. I remember reaching out to you and talking to you at various points along the way during the, the 100 days or 100 days plus. And that great big red bear over your shoulder. <laughs> For the longest time, it was just the red bear. And now it has a, I, I, I can't see it closely, but there's a femininity to it. There's a life to it. There's an optimism to it. And then there's a white bear that's traveling in the opposite direction. And I remember when I saw it and you put it up on the, the website, it looked to me like the changing of seasons the solstice. Mm -hmm. And it's such a beautiful piece and it's very peaceful. It felt like spring emerging and winter receding. So anyway, that's my interpretation. That's a good interpretation. And it's, it fits the piece really well, I think. And it's also very close to mine, my interpretation of it, which is not the only one just because I'm the artist. Mm -hmm. But yes, the red bear went through a number of incarnations. At one point there was a village at the bottom of the bear that was on the waterfront. The village disappeared and, and the bear instead got a d distinct and definite belly. The bear ended up with birds and flowers painted across the top of it. The red bear did. At one point, there was a lot of abstract cloud-like shapes in the sky above the bear. Those came out when I realized, no, it needs to be trees. And the trees then were painted over almost in their entirety as well when I realized, no, there's a polar bear <laughs> that's actually bigger than the red bear <laughs> going in the opposite direction. And then I realized, oh, the polar bear also has birds. 
the birds and the polar bear are much more subtle. You probably mm-hmm. can't see them on camera here, but there's several swans mm. in the back of the polar bear traveling the direction the polar bear is. And the mm. polar bear is going in one direction and the red bear in the other. And it's like they're passing, like they're the change of the guard. And yeah, that's what that's how they feel to me, too. They feel like the change of the seasons from mm. summer to winter in either direction. What was the most profound moment during that time? That's interesting. Another technique I use is referred to as active imagination mm-hmm. or um, the Jungian side of the world refers to it as twilight image journaling. You let yourself go into something like a trance and you let images come and then you just watch them. It's a sort of awake form of dreaming. And in one of these, I had a very vivid encounter with a tall lady in a rust colored coveralls who brought me a bird and she put the bird in my hand and this is yours now, take care of it. And this bird was like as fragile as the the thin white ash on a piece of paper that's burned in a fire, but hasn't really collapsed its structure yet. So it looks translucent and this bird's in my hand. And I'm like, I don't want this bird. I'm not going to be able to do anything with this bird. My hand is now tied down. What am I? So I, I tried several different ways to get out of this. And then realized, no, I can't really get out of this. And so I just sat down there. This all took place on a beach. I sat down with the bird in my hand and I was like, I don't know what I'm doing here, but I'm just going to wait and see see what happens. And the rust colored woman sat down next to me, put her hand on my knee, her very kind of motherly hand on my knee. And we just sat there. And over time, I came to understand that the bird was my responsibility and accountability for my work, for the artwork. And I had been dodging that part of not taking the artwork for a walk is dodging the responsibility for the accountability for how it's received in the outside world. Mm. And I have been, I put it online and stuff, but I don't, I'm not looking for a big audience partly because I don't really want the commentary. So I'm failing to take responsibility. And so that's a large part of what the bird's about. So the bird has grown and changed in these images over the course of the hundred days, because this happened somewhere around day, like day 35 or 40. And the bird is now, the bird is, is, is a they, them, not a he, but the bird is taller than I am now and human. At one point it used to sit on my shoulder like a flamingo with its legs all folded up all funny. It was really strange to have it there. And I would have dialogues with other people in my internal world and stuff with, but the bird would be sitting there on my shoulder. Everywhere I went, I was saddled with the bird one way or the other. And I was beginning to get used to it. At at one point, the bird transformed into a person. And when they did, they showed up at, at one point, I was at a table with a bunch of my cohorts, right? My parts. And the bird shows up as this tall youth, very gangly, very tall, in a, just a white frock. that's just this white garment that just hung down to its knees. And it walks right up and climbs up into my lap. It's taller than I am already. It climbs up into my lap and puts its head on my shoulder. And I'm embarrassed because like this, 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 this young guy looking guy sitting in my lap now. And I'm, my guests, my parts all just look at me like this is normal. And I'm like, what? And I realize, oh my gosh, it's the bird. The bird has become this. The bird is now taller than I am, bigger than I am, is growing a strawberry blonde beard, is still they, them in the images. And the bird does chalk drawings in my interior world. And I have been able to transpose some of them into this world using the left hand. And that's the most profound stuff that happened during the course of this whole journey is all this stuff with the bird. And like the bears, it's had a very strong symbolic impact on me. And it's also been very definite in terms of what it means 
and where it's been propelling me. So I have a piece that's on the wall in front of me over here. It's probably my favorite thing I've ever made. Mm. And it's the first, it's the first chalk drawing the bird made. And I transcribed it. And the title of it is, the, let me read it quick. It's called The Face of Grace, Generosity, Glory, and Glee. Mm. That's what it is. <laughs> it's the face of that. And it's this very childlike drawing. And it's, I love it. <laughs> it's just, and it's nothing like anything I've ever drawn. And I can see you're really emotionally connected to it, that experience. Yes. 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 That was a transforming experience. The rust-colored lady has shown up multiple times since. She has a very definite role to play. She is also a particular part of me, one that I don't understand well, which I'm trying to get more information and knowledge about. But she's the one that brought me the bird. What have you learned about courage? I, I, I mentioned earlier in the, in the previous episode, right, that the, a courageous life is primarily you have to want it. I believe that very much that's still the case. It would be easy to stop this. At this point, I'm too curious, I think, now to, to stop. <laughs> but the, the fact is it would still be easy at some point to feel like this is too hard or I don't have time for this or whatever and simply stop. And at that point, the, the courageous life would end as well, would end with it. And I would just simply be doing things in an ordinary fashion, maybe the, like the, the way I did them before. But I think what I've learned about courage is that it's contagious. No, that's not the right word. It's addictive. That's what I wanted to say. Mm. The act of doing this and continuing this, if I stopped doing it now, I think I would feel like I was climbing back into a much smaller box. I would feel like I was uh, letting all my future selves down. And more than anything, I wouldn't feel what happens when I step over these lines in, in courage anymore. You know, that's like, oh, gee, I'll never eat sushi again, or I'll never eat Chinese again, or I'll never make love again, or those aren't things I'm contemplating. <laughs> so the same is true for courage. It's, it's become something that I can't really imagine not wanting to do this. And it's crept over into everything else. It's crept into my day job and everything else. You, you get so that you want the, it's not the adrenaline rush. I think that's what some people get. That's not what it is. For me, it's the, it's that feeling of fighting my way through the trees and then I come out into the cleared space on the other side and it's wow I had no idea this was here and I can't imagine not doing that over and over again <laughs> it's just too great you know coming out of the trees out into that open space and seeing what's next you know it's like the left hand drawings my left hand is actually learning how to draw mm -hmm. so it's no longer it's no longer as clumsy as it was so, and the same thing with the courage. It's when you step out and do something daring or whatever, the same size thing to step over doesn't give you quite the same rush the next time. It maybe has to be a bigger one. And the same thing with challenges, which is a good thing because as I get to that, taking my art for a walk, putting it out on the website, putting prices on it and seeing if people will pay those prices, that's the pinnacle of scary, I think. You know, those are challenges I feel like I'm working up towards. In a way, I think mm -hmm. at the beginning of the hundred days, those seemed really large. They seem less large now because I've climbed some of the foothills in front of them. Mm -hmm. If that mm -hmm. makes sense. I think at this stage, what I'm doing is I'm uh, integrating the new approaches in the new work 
with the old work. It really is simply still an extension of the old. It's just, it took me a while to realize that and realize how. I think I'm also finding how I want to present the work. And maybe that's another challenge I've got ahead of me. I believe that what people want in this kind of artwork is not just the piece. They want the story behind it. They want the story that goes with it. And many of my art pieces, like so many of the things in our house here, we have friends that joke with us about it all the time. Everything in your house is a story behind it. Yeah, pretty much does. And the same thing is true for the art. So in many cases, I've got either images and pieces of the stages along the way, which I think patrons will want that information, will want that as part of the piece mm. to have its life story. It's like when you go to a museum and you see a painting on the wall, and then next to the painting, they happen to have three of the preliminary drawings or sketches that the artist did in, in preparation for the painting. And nothing is more fascinating than seeing that whole thing together. Yes. Maybe because I'm an artist, maybe I'm more into that than others. But I think a lot of people are interested in that. So that's what I've got to figure out next is I built a prototype of the website. And I don't think it's what I need. Mm -hmm. I think what I need is something that's more episodic. It's not like, here's a gallery, here's all the pieces. It's more like, here's a piece. Here's the story behind the piece. Here's some additional images that go with the piece, right? It's the history. And then the next one, and then the next one, they may be more like a, almost like blog entries, mm. but there's, but they're for sale. There's a price tag. You can buy this, the whole thing, you know? Um, mm -hmm. And it comes all packaged together. That's what you, that's what you get. I recall going to a Da Vinci exhibit and just the iterations of oh, yeah the flying machine, all the drawings and all the calculations and where it started and where it, it got to is fascinating. And it is because it's not just, okay, yeah. boom, I sat there with a blob of clay or put this thing together. It's a huge process that, that, that happens over time and that there is a progression quite often in painting or anything. That's right. And in many cases, the painting starts in a very different place than it ends. Mm -hmm. And the progression shows not just how it's done. The progression shows how the artist found their way. And that's a very human endeavor. There's nothing magical or miraculous about it. It's usually just a lot of hard work and a lot of baby steps that maybe eventually end up in an extraordinary place, especially for great works of art. But the getting there, it, it isn't just bloomed Athena out of the head of Zeus. It, it comes very gradually, one little teeny thing at a time, and often with a great deal many missteps. And I think for a lot of people being able to see, oh, there's this beautiful thing, but look at how it got here. That's how it got here is, I could, I could do similar things. I would think it would be inspiring for people to see mm -hmm. that even the greatest works of art had a very human and pedestrian path that mm -hmm. was taken to get from the start to that monumental finish. Mm -hmm. What are you glad that you didn't know at the beginning of this? I think, hmm, that's an interesting question. There was a period in the middle where I really felt completely lost one of the things I was challenged by my friends and others to do in that middle period where I dropped offline and didn't write much and didn't read anything. And just they, what they challenged me to do was to sit with the bear, to sit with the work and don't try to artificially get things started or whatever. Just literally sit until you for sure you're done sitting. And that was frankly the most awful part of the whole thing. And it took three weeks, I think where I was literally doing almost nothing 
If I'd known I had that to pass through, or somebody told me what's going to happen is you're going to grind down to a halt, then I probably, I, I might not have dared to do it because coming out of the workshop and coming out of the amount of work I was getting done out of the workshop, I was on a roll. And part of me was a little superstitious about stopping the roll. And that was, that's probably the piece that was the most difficult and most scary was the point where I literally just ground to a halt. There's a really interesting tension between the concept of resistance and rest. Yes. Yes. And there's a significant difference between the two of them. But I think in some respects in this, and I'm speaking to myself right now in my writing, there's a real story that you start to tell yourself about how you're, in air quotes, wimping out, or you're backing away, or you're avoiding, or it's just resistance, just sit down and write. And while that's true, there is a certain amount of just needing to sit with the story and just sit with whatever it is that you're working through. And it's not then creating a phobia with the blank page or the blank canvas. It's simply sitting with it, resting into resting into the work, as opposed to telling yourself that you're, you're stuck or you're procrastinating or all these other kinds of labels that we've acquired. And I think there's a disservice in a way to the work in not allowing a certain amount of rest. Yeah, I would agree with that. The, the idea of a daily practice is the, the problem is potentially the word daily, right? You may need to take a break. The idea of finishing and shipping, which is another really major concept. These are both really powerful tools for overcoming block, for overcoming fear, for overcoming resistance. Mm-hmm. So highly recommend both. But like any tool, it's not useful for everything. And there are times when you put the tool down and do something else. It's funny you mentioned Leonardo da Vinci earlier, because I'm reading his biography right now. And uh, part of what drew me to it was not that it's, a, oh, it's a, 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 a biography of Leonardo da Vinci, the greatest, one of the greatest artists that's ever lived. It's the fact that the biography is about Leonardo is not some genius per se. He had a few character traits which enabled him to pile up all these little incremental moves like I just talked about before until they reached this pinnacle. But it was a very human effort. It's one step at a time. He climbed where he got by one step at a time. He did have some things that were indeed very unusual about him, but they're not the ones you might think. It wasn't just like this awesome, God-inspiring brilliance. It was a combination of other things that he parlayed into that. And so that's when I was like, oh, I got to read this now. (laughs) I have to see how that all fits together. I have to see how it jives with me and other artists I know. I mean, if this man is also just like the rest of us, feet of clay, moving them one at a time, let's go. I want to know. But the reason I brought it up is the Mona Lisa which so many people consider to be one of the most amazing things ever painted. And certainly many people believe it's his best piece. He worked on that his entire life. It was still, by him, considered unfinished at the end. Over 30 years, he worked on that piece. He tinkered with it continuously. There were long periods of time where he also had it with him everywhere he went and didn't do anything with it. He had periods of rest for that piece and most pieces. He, m- most of his artwork, he, he hauled with him 
like an entourage <laughs> and worked on most of his life. Things like The Last Supper, he couldn't. It was on a wall. But on most of the rest of it, he just hauled it around with him. It was there at his death. That's not what most people think. They think you work on this until it's done. And it's not how it actually works. Even for the greatest artists, they know when and how to rest. Overall, and in a particular piece, even. Yeah. There's, a, there's an element of time maturing, just like everything else in nature and the seasons and stuff. There's, there's time that goes into gestating things, ripening things, where you can't help them really by poking at them. <laughs> mm -hmm. If you had the opportunity to have a five-minute conversation with someone, who would it be and what would the nature of the conversation be? Wow. Wow. That's like asking me what my favorite color is. Actually, I can answer that question, but I didn't used to be able to. <laughs> I was like, How can I pick one? There's no way to pick one. I want them all. So I, I, I have a similar feeling about this. It's like, who would I, who would I, who would I want to talk to? I think it might be either Matisse or George O'Keefe. Mm. Uh, they're the two artists that I feel like their work is the most inspiring to me. And yet is not like mine. They both painted and worked all their lives. They both lived very long, rich lives. Both of them are producing some of their best work even at the end. It, it probably would be Matisse. And I probably would want to talk to Matisse during his last year. Mm. And I would want to talk to him about what he was doing. <laughs> what are you making, dude? <laughs> because at that point, he was making the paper cutouts. Mm. And they're not like anything else he ever made. He couldn't paint anymore. He wasn't physically able. And so he was doing this instead. He would have assistants paint large pieces of paper, all one, all one color. And it was a group of different colors, a set series of five or six different colors. And then he took this massive set of shears. There's photographs of him doing this. And he would just cut wild, cut all these wild shapes out without having drawn anything either. He just cut them. And then he would put some um, st sticky stuff on the back. I don't know if it was tape or what. And he would put them on a long pole and he would put them up on the ceiling <laughs> above his bed or on the wall above his bed. And he would just arrange these. He would have assistants take them down and move them around. And he was just still composing all the way at the end. And they are, if you ever get to see Matisse's paper cutouts, don't miss it. It's not that they're not like anything else. The, mm. There was a, there was a gallery in the natural gallery of modern art on the um, mall in Washington, D.C., Mm -hmm. there's a large upstairs room that they use for these special displays. And they had the room entirely dedicated to nothing, but some of his largest paper cuts that were mm -hmm. up on the walls. And I, I went in that room, I went in that room and I think I, I probably wept for 10 minutes. <laughs> and then I just sat there and absorbed these. They're just, they're, they're so playful and simple. And yet they're so profound. That just sounds beautiful. I thought you were going to say Da Vinci. No, actually. <laughs> when you think about, oh gosh, I only have five minutes and only one person. The way you frame the question, I'm like, oh gee, then it's got to be somebody where I feel like the answer would be shocking in some way or, or truly revelatory. And Da Vinci, as I'm understanding him and reading him anyway, I think I would understand him pretty well. <laughs> right down to, we talked in the first episode about how my whole family is full of engineers and artists. Vinci's like the ultimate combination of the two. Yes. I mean, yeah. I get so much. All these notebook pages, I look at them and go, oh, dude, I totally know what you're doing there. <laughs> of course.
course you would want to take that apart visually like that and draw all the lines of, of uh, confrontation and everything else. And Georgia O'Keeffe. Yes, she's another really groundbreaking artist in a great many different ways. And I feel if our society had been different and she had not been a woman, she'd had a different career. I don't know, maybe it worked out better because she was not lionized as much. So she pursued her work the way she wanted to. One of her quotes is very germane to the topic of your podcast. What is it? I was terrified every single day of my life, but I never let it stop me from doing anything I wanted to do. Perfect. Anything else you want to share? I don't think so. I think we talked about everything that I thought of, especially after listening to the first episode and I'm thinking about, wow, where did this ultimately go? So I'm still on the same path. I just... Had a detour to take. I want to say you had a deep tour to take. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I had to go pick up a bird. Yeah. Thank you so much for this. Thank you. Near the end of our conversation in episode 22, Steve shared this thought. Hoping by the end of this, I'm dealing with fear in a more fresh form. And I'm dealing with it in a larger form that I've grown enough to be able to handle it differently. I'm really hoping that as I move further through this, I've begun to change my relationship with fear so that I Mm -hmm. don't see it as something that I would run from, but more like something I would run toward. The right way to enter the arena is not, you know, to come in and then carry around the walls going, where, all right, where's the enemy or where's the other gladiator, right? It's instead, it's to come roaring out with your sword in the air. Where is he? (laughs) Let me at him. And that's more what I'd like to get to. And that's not natural or easy for me. But I believe I can probably shift so that becomes more like what it's really like, how it really feels. It sounds like mission accomplished. Looking forward to continuing to follow you and your work, Steve, as you achieve your next goal of taking it out for a walk. Thank you for listening. Please follow or subscribe to this podcast. And if you feel someone else might benefit from listening to this episode, please share it. Leave a rating or review wherever you listen to your podcasts. They really do make my day. Do you know someone whose story I should share? Please feel free to reach out to me via my website or email at lynda at lindamclaughlin.com. I look forward to sharing my next guest story of surviving the dark side of the self-help industry. Until next time, my name is Linda McLaughlin in The Arena.